Good morning. If you have your Bibles, open them with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 11. Hebrews, chapter number 11. I will announce to you um, that we will be having a baptism coming up soon. Uh, we're going to wait till the lake freezes over. <laughs> Just for Craig, wherever he's at. Uh, but uh, Craig has desired to uh, to be baptized, and so we want to um, we want to uh, rejoice with him as he makes that visible testimony or, uh, of identifying with Christ and Christ's people, which is really an act of obedience for the believer. It is a first steps uh, in your Christian walk to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized. And so we um, just want to mention this morning, if you have not been baptized and you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, uh, come see me after the service and we, we would love to talk to you about that. Uh, our Lord and Savior commands us to uh, and calls us to, <clears throat> to be baptized. So I want to encourage you, if you have not been baptized and you uh, believe Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for your sin, rose again the third day, and you put your faith and trust in him, then you need to be baptized. That's what scripture teaches us. So come see me after the service or maybe sometime this evening. And speaking of ordinances of the church, uh, it's not quite often I mention both of those in the same morning service, but tonight is our communion service. And I was almost going to get up here and say, guys, you're invited to come tonight, but that would be wrong of me. Because I should say to our church people, and if you're visiting here, don't take it that way, but our church people, you should be here tonight as we celebrate communion together. The Lord gives us this great moment of worship and remembrance of what Christ has did for us. And as often as we come together and do that, we do that in remembrance of him. So it's a time where we as a church come together and we, we celebrate and we preach that gospel and what Christ did for us through the act of communion. Now, if you're visiting with us, you should come too if you if uh, you are uh, inclined to do that. We we wholeheartedly invite you to come meet with us tonight, seven o'clock. So we'll see you here then. Well, you have your Bibles open in front of you. I want to begin reading in verse number thirty-seven or, or thirty-six, and I want to read down to verse number seven of uh, Hebrews chapter uh, number eleven. <clears throat> Bible says, for you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith in preserving their souls. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen for by it people of old received their con, uh, commendation by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. 
And before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for just the songs we've already sung, the prayers we've already offered, the words that's already been read. And Lord, I just pray in this time we, uh, we would sit submissive to your word, that you would just speak to us through your spirit. God, and that you would work in our lives what needs to be done. So thankful for the promise that you have said your word will not return back to you void. And so we just pray for your work to be done among us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. <clears throat> we are in that great uh, hall of faith or heroes of faith chapter as often have been, it has been labeled. And we looked last week, beginning of this, this kind of glimpse of faith trying to define it through chapter number 11, verse number 1, what faith is. Uh, this belief, this trust is not something we can uh, go get a cup of from your neighbor. Uh, I've got great neighbors. I'm sure they would give me a cup of sugar if I needed it or salt or cream or whatever because they keep that stuff. But you don't go to your neighbor and say, I need a cup of faith. It's not like that. You don't go to Lowe's and buy a bucket of it. Uh, it's not tangible. We can't see it in that way. But that would be foolish to say that faith is not something that is, that is not seen or, or faith is manifested in our lives. And you see that throughout this chapter. And so he doesn't leave us in an abstract definition of what faith might be in verse number 1. He, he throughout chapter number 11 begins to show us the manifestation of faith, what faith looks like when one believes God. It is alive and active. It is evident in our lives and lives of men of old, and so it ought to be in our lives as well. James deals with that whole subject uh, of faith and works in chapter number 2. So faith is something, beginning of verse number 1 of this, just to, to bring our minds back. Now, faith is assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is here that faith is that confidence or substance or evidence of things which we hope for. It doesn't mean that what we believe, if we believe it earnestly enough, it, it creates what we hope for. Uh, in that sense, as John Piper would say, we don't make it. Uh, we don't make our hope just because we are earnest. Uh, it is really that hope or the promises of God which, which really are the things in which we believe. Those are the things which we lay hold of by faith. And so faith itself is a apprehension of God's promises. It is a belief or a trust, a rest in his character, in his ability to make good on what he has promised. It is that what you see, that conviction of the things we have not seen, of God himself, he mentions in verse number three, but, but also of what he has promised us. And that conviction, the writer is saying, he says, that's faith. That's faith. He goes on and reminds us, of that here uh, in verse number three, as we alluded to, we see the world around us and we see all the things that uh, God has created and they testify to us this wonderful creative power of God and his infinite wisdom and his 
goodness and and you can just look uh, look at yourselves look at our, our molecules and our bodies and how they're made up uh, and, and you're really left with two options either it's all an accident a mistake it just kind of happened randomly and we excuse it kind of away because we, we excuse God away or we we acknowledge that we are created wonderfully by God himself and he is a he is a gifted creator we see that uh, even in our seasons the leaves are changing uh, and we don't say uh, and, and it testifies to us that something is going on basically for most of us it testifies there's going to be snow right for some of you that have been waiting for that so the evidence of those things we can't see, the evidence of things that's going on in the world around us underneath the surface and the trees and the shortening of the sun, the evidence of all of that testifies to the reality of the changing of the seasons. Creation itself is testifying to the reality of God. We don't see him. We don't see a hand or a foot or, a, or an arm or his eye or his ear. We don't see that. God is, is invisible. He is a spirit. He doesn't have a body in that sense, but we believe that he exists and we believe that he's created all of these things around us. That belief, that trust, that understanding is faith. That's what the word of God is telling us, but it's not an ignorant or an uninformed faith. In fact, even in verse number three, he uses here by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that it was seen, not made out of things that are visible. And he said, bringing the readers back to Genesis, we're informed that God created all of this by his word because his word tells us so. It's an informed faith. We know how the world began because God has revealed it to us through his word. Now, you may not agree with the Bible. That doesn't give you the right to change the Bible. Uh, that's worth saying in our culture. You're, you have a right to your own opinion. You have a right to be wrong, right? Uh, but the word of God has revealed to us God creating everything by the word of his power. And so we see this great call of faith. Last week we said our faith is informed by the word of God. Um, God tells us about his promises and about who he is and about who we are. Through his word, he reveals that to us. It is his uh, self-disclosure. But also by the spirit of God working in us. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So it isn't like, like magic that took place when these words were, were typed out on this piece of paper in front of me, blacking on, on white paper. Now it's the spirit of God taking the word of God and bringing fruit which is belief unto salvation. And so we have an informed faith. That faith is through the word and through the spirit. And now look at me with verse number six this morning. I want to look at the necessity of faith uh, as he begins to describe this, this great verse for us. And the Bible says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, there is a, I guess if you're writing headings in this morning for your outline, the first heading would be pleasing God. It seems to be what he's taken up with in verse number 5 and 6, 
And really the whole gamut of chapter number 11 is this faith which is pleasing to God. This faith which is pleasing to God. And I would say that's the heart and desire of every Christian here this morning. To live a life, have a life that is pleasing to our Lord and Savior. You think of those words Jesus gave in the parable when the, when the landowner comes back and he speaks to his servants as they come and give an account of what they have done. And he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. There's something in that that, that we grab a hold of. We want to live a life that is pleasing to God. How do we do that? Well, he gives us a few examples of that before we flesh out what he means in verse number six. The first example is that found in verse number four of Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gift, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now, Abel is the first m- murder. Um, he was the first martyr in the word of God. And actually, every time I read that encounter of Cain and Abel, uh, it sticks in my mind what God had promised Adam and Eve would take place when they sinned against him, they would surely die. There is a spiritual death that that went on to be sure, and we will later on see in, in the genealogy that Adam, after a certain period of time, hundreds and hundreds of years that he physically died. But but the reality of that death is living color in the fact that Cain kills Abel. Cain kills Abel, death entering into the world uh, and a death between brothers. Well, it is uh, Genesis 4, 3 through 10. You don't need to turn there, but uh, that section is very brief. And the, the writer here in Hebrews just gives us a short glimpse of what has taken place. Both of the men come, both with sacrifices, and God accepts one, Abel's sacrifice, and rejects Cain's. Now, there's a lot has been made about the kind of sacrifice that's been offered up. Abel was a, uh, was a herdsman. He had, he had cattle. He had animals. And so he offered up one of his flock of the firstborn. And so he offered up a blood sacrifice. Cain offered up the fruit of the field. He was a tiller of the ground. And so he offered up his own work and his own uh, his own um, it, what he raised in the garden. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot you could say about that, uh, and there's a lot of disagreement on that. Is that the reason Cain was rejected? And is that the reason Abel was accepted? There's more that the writer wants us to see here in Abel's sacrifice than just the blood offering. If it was that being the case, God having instructed them what to offer up and how to offer up before God, that very act of obedience is a demonstration of faith, isn't it? Abel offers up his sacrifice, and the writer, though he doesn't mention it in Genesis, the writer assumes and and clarifies for us why God accepted it, because Abel offered up a sacrifice through or by his faith. By his faith, notice again, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. It isn't just the fact that he went through the motion of things. His worship was was produced from or flowing out of his belief, his trust in God. The very act of his offering was him uh, and his disposition towards God as being pointed towards him, for him, 
honoring him, he offered up a sacrifice more excellent than Cain. Cain himself showing his, his, um, his contrast or being a contrast, the ultimate apex of unbelief in God. Because Cain, even being rebuked of his sacrifice, would not repent and turn to God after God had confronted him and said, if you do what is right, will not all be well with you? What do we see? We see Cain's hardness of heart, his unbelief. And so you see here, God pleased with Abel offering up a sacrifice and his acceptance of that sacrifice is a declaration of his acceptance of the worshiper. And there's just kind of a point of, uh, I think, application for us. Worship is not apart from us as a person. It ought to be a flow from our heart, the way we give, the way we sing, the way we rejoice, the way we pray, all of it flowing out from us, not, a, not apart from us, not just something that we do. Uh, Abel worshiped God, offered up to God that which was pleasing to him because he offered it up in faith. His righteousness is not in the sacrifice. His righteousness is in the faith which brought the sacrifice. It's very important for us to understand it is by faith. And he goes on and says at the end of verse number four, Abel, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And though he died, he still speaks. Well, he speaks through the encounter of the word of God every time you read through Genesis. Every time you come through Hebrews, he still speaks. Every time we come across this, this kind of obedient faith, this heart towards God, this giving which is acceptable to God, it is, a, it is a challenge and encouragement to us that this is what pleases God. Worship that's offered through faith. But secondly, the second figure that he shows us this morning as he speaks about pleasing God is that of Enoch. Verse number 5 says, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now writer is using the Septuagint as he draws back in the book of Genesis as we read this account in chapter number 5, uh, really in the midst of the genealogies that we tend to skip over, right? So when you skip over, you miss good stuff, right? Re work through them genealogies, that's a good... It's a good plug for that. But in the middle of that, uh, in the book of Genesis, it says he walked with God. And the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translated that as he pleased God, which I think both are accurate uh, descriptions of what we see. But he's, notice he says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was found not because God had taken him. He had this testimony that he walked with God. And in fact, when you go back to the book of Genesis and you read that encounter, it says for 300 years he walked with God. Let me just ask a question. How many of you have been saved more than 40 years and walked with God for more than 40 years? Raise your hand this morning. Nothing to be embarrassed about. 300 years he walked with God. He walked with God. Showing that, that faith in God is more than just an act of sacrifice. That it, that it was an intimate fellowship. That, that it encompassed all of his life. Uh, to say it another way is what the Hebrew writer is saying. That his life, his, his fellowship with God was pleasing to him. His whole life was an act of worship. I read something to the fact, I'll probably butcher the quote. 
as Tozer would say, if your life is not an act of worship, then, the, then your lips will not be an act of worship. Now, I got that pretty close. I think I did. If not, uh, Tozer can correct me when I get to heaven. Nevertheless, there's something seen there in that progression, not just an act of worship, but living continually pleasing to God, walking with God in fellowship with God in step with him, going towards God and not away from him. And it is quite amazing as you think about uh, Enoch that he lived in a culture that was going the opposite direction. It was not easy. It was not like the great awakening that we read about where thousands of people are coming to save and, and Bibles are being printed and all this stuff that God was doing. It's amazing, right? We, we were encouraged about all that, but it was darkness. The world was being prepared for total condemnation of the flood. And yet here's one, in the midst of it all, enduring all the environment that he was in, walked with God for 300 years and God took him. What a what a conviction against a wicked world that will face that will face death through the judgment of God, declaring before all those who knew Enoch that here is one who pleased him so that he spared him from death. I'll just be honest, as I think about Enoch and I think about Abel, I want my worship to be pleasing to God. But more than that, how I offer up what I sing and, and listen to his word. I want my whole life to be pleasing to God, to walk with God and walk in fellowship with him and to be known as one who loved the Lord, who believed in God and who lived it out. You want to leave a testimony, a heritage to your children and to your grandchildren. Money's great. That's good. It could be helpful. Leave a testimony that that you love God and you walk with God and you follow God imperfectly. Yes, you're not going to be perfect, but leave a testimony that you were a Christian, not by mouth only, but by your actions. Enoch left that testimony that he pleased God, a life pleasing to God. And so we see here our third example given to us in verse number seven. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Again, noting his righteousness, his reception of righteousness is by faith, is by faith. Noah, called by Peter, a preacher of righteousness, it was his faith in the message of God which moved him, caused him to build a boat and that would lead to the saving of his family. It is by faith we see this attributed to him. And so we go back to verse number six, seeing this it, um, as they stood up against all of, the, all of the sway of their society, standing alone, giving the very cost of his own life as Abel did for believing God and following God uh, Noah and, and standing up against all ridicule and, and all wickedness that was rampant in his society, all of them lived out trusting, believing. They walked by faith. They believed God. Now, I want to say this very clearly. They're not the hero of the story. As you read through the Old Testament characters, uh, they're not heroes in, in the sense where we idolize them. We make statues of them and, and we, we think that that is what we need to be ultimately. The hero of every one of those stories is God himself. 
the faith that they had was not in their own resolve or their own endurance or their own ability to build a boat to protect them from rain, which he had never seen. I don't even know if he knew what a boat was when God told him to build it, but, but who knows? The faith was rooted. The difference, the hero was rooted in God himself. They believed God. They knew him. They followed him. They trusted him. And yet also the writer would have us to see evidences of that in their lives to challenge us. Are we walking by faith? Do we worship by faith? Are we, are we warning and, and serving by faith as these men did? Why? Well, because God hasn't changed. The same faith which moved these men, Abraham and others, is the same God today. Now notice the necessity of faith as we began this uh, heading and he says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. And I don't know what your translation says. Actually, I kind of do because I read most of the ones that you would have this morning. But it does say impossible, doesn't it? And it doesn't mean that it's very difficult. If you don't have faith, you just have to work a little harder and try a little more. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. There is no way to please God apart from faith. You know, there's something about the religious nature of man and the religious experience that the world has, kind of in general, I'm just speaking in general, but, but isn't that the, the effort of everyone's activities? How can we appease this deity? How can we appease this God? And, and so over and over, the prescriptions is bring this sacrifice or do this or do that or, or, or live this way or or all of the other prescriptions that it gives you. And the word of God says all of that is impossible. None of it works. The, the foundation to please God is by faith and faith alone. Without it, it's impossible. And we know that back in Romans chapter number 5, verse number 1, our, our justification is a product of our faith. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved. We're we're made right with God, right standing with God, not because we work, not because we've offered sacrifices and all of those sort of things, not even because we perceive in our own mind that we're not as bad as we think we are. Amen? So are you think you're a pretty good guy or a pretty good gal? You know, and, and God knows that and, and all that. The word of God never gives us that comfort. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our right standing isn't our perception about us or our works or anything we can offer up or give. It is solely rooted in God, faith in God. The, the word of God actually in salvation causes us to, to look away from ourselves because looking at ourselves is a futile effort. We will never save ourselves. We will never uh, redeem ourselves and deliver ourselves. We know that. We've tried that. How many of you have tried that this morning? Maybe not this morning, but you know in your past. Right? It's futile. No, that righteousness, that deliverance, that salvation is turning away from ourselves, looking away from ourselves and looking to Jesus Christ. And as we believe upon him and his finished work, we are at peace with God. Our sin is laid upon him. His righteousness is laid upon us. We are declared right before God. That is, as many have called it, the great exchange. 
he receives my sin and we receive his righteousness. I receive his righteousness all by faith, by believing. You know, that's what makes it so hard, isn't it? Because God has made it so easy. Because we want to add to that. But it's more than just being born again, brought into the family of God. The, the writer would have us to know to, to live a life that is continually pleasing to God in the way we worship and the way we carry on day in, day out. He says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But know that with faith, we do please God. If it without it is impossible to please God, then with faith... We can, that's what he's saying to us, we can please God. We can live a life, you can live a life this morning that pleases God. You can live a life that God is pleased at. As some would say, God smiles upon uh, in that way. How do we do that? Well, secondly, notice not only do we see pleasing God, we see believing God. He tells us in the second part of this verse, for who would ever draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now that phrase, those who would draw near to God, is very familiar to us. We find it twice in chapter number 10. Uh, for since the law has but shadow of good things to come instead of true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year Make perfect those who draw near to God. Verse number 22, again, he's encouraging us by this one sacrifice. Those who draw near to God are, are called or, or allowed or, or given access to draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Earlier in chapter number 4 and chapter number 7, he speaks about us drawing near to the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. So he, he's speaking to us this morning who have come to sit here. Uh, and, and to hear what the Lord of God has said, who, those of us who come to worship, those who would draw near to, to know something of him or, or to receive something at his hand. Those who need strength and those who need encouragement, those who need help, those who need and don't know they need, right? Those who would draw near. That's what he's speaking to. Uh, and he's already uh, spoken about the necessity of faith. But those who are drawn near, he says, first and foremost, they must believe that God exists. They must believe that God exists or simply that he is. One can hardly come to God if you don't believe in his existence. It's futile, isn't it? Uh, you go to him in formality and... And because that's what everyone else is doing and, and you know in your own heart or in your own mind that, that there is no God at all. You're, you're just speaking to the air, to the wind. But he's saying that's not the case for those who would draw near to God. We must come to him believing that he exists. I don't know if it was Spurgeon who said something of the effect of uh, atheists and their peculiar sin in which they had, but it was said something... Um, Something around the lines of saying that is such an odd sin which even the devils and the demons haven't fallen into. For they believe that there is one God and they fear and tremble before him. And as one commentator says, they believe in the whole Trinity, by the way, if you want to know it, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And yet he's speaking more to us than just believing that God exists. And we get that back from Exodus chapter number 3 and verse number 14 where Moses is... is 
talking to God. God's calling him to go back to Egypt and deliver my people. Moses says, I don't even know your name. Who are you? And they're going to, they're going to say, God of whoever, what are you talking about? They, they've been worshiping Egyptian gods all this time anyway. And, and who's going to, who am I going to say sent me? So what does God say? I am who I am. That's what you'll tell them. Or I am the I am. I am the being. I am the living one was who is and is to come as jesus would later on and say in the book of revelation he is he is the true reality the one who exists he is who he is to say it another way now you and i have been taught uh, many of us if not most of us in here this morning our whole life in the existence of god i can remember growing up in sunday school and uh, and church and hearing about God and ultimately that we're going to stand before him and give an account for our lives. We read about the splendor of creation in Romans 1 and, and Psalms 19 and we, we begin to form in our children's mind this reality of God and his existence. The work of the Holy Spirit and the word of God again affirming that God is real. And that is something I think that you and I need to be reminded of. As a Christian, and I know it's simple and it's basic, but, but do you understand that in the weight of what you go through that God is? He is alive? That He is real? That He is really on the throne? That He is sovereign Lord over all of creation? You remember Isaiah 6 when, when Isaiah's looking and, and that great king dies and, and then he looks up. And to wonder, what will the next kingdom look like? The next king look like? And God shows him a throne which one sits on it, the glory of whom fills the temple. There's no room for anything else other than God in his presence. And you see, we need that reminder often. God is sovereign. God is alive. God is, is on his throne. He is well, and Christ is risen from the dead. He's not dead. He's not hindered by the grave. And we need that joy and that constant reminder often. Things get hard. Problems that you face are difficult. People, amen, are difficult. And the burden which you carry for people, even in your own families. And you and I need to be brought back. And that's really what faith is. We're holding on to not just, not just a confessional creed. A statement about the Trinity, which is, uh, which is really nice. If you want to want to hold on, I think those are true and accurate. We should know those things. But you're holding on to the reality of a living God, not a dead idol, not a bygone error. Not, we're not we're not unearthing the Greek gods because they're fascinating and people are you know they're into all that kind of stuff. God is alive and well. He is on His throne. He is sovereign, ruling and reigning. And you and I can take great comfort. You might need that reminder today why you wonder about tomorrow that God is. He is alive. He is well. He is on his throne. But it also reminds us not only of the livingness of God, God being alive, but it also reminds us that we can't make God what he is not. It's not like Plato. We, we have those contraptions. You know, you put plate on this thing and you press out and you got spaghetti. It's not real spaghetti. You're not going to eat it. I hope not. 
But we make it to look like spaghetti or, or a car or, or a basketball or whatever you want to make it look like. And, and don't we do the same thing with God? If he is the ultimate reality, the ultimate being, then we must come to the reality he is who he is and not who we make him. And some of our problems in this life is the fact that he looks a lot more like us than he does himself. Amen? We look at God through the lens of our own weakness and our own ineptitude and our lack of understanding instead of rather looking at God through the revelation which he has given to us, his word. I mentioned last week the frustration of the early worshipers in uh, the Assyrian area as they spoke to the uh, frustration of not knowing God and his prayer, which is about three minutes long. I think you can find it on YouTube. I, I don't encourage you to do that, but you can find it on YouTube if you want to know where I got this. Uh, I actually got it from a book. I can give you the quote later. But through this long prayer, he makes all of these prayers to this God I know and the God I don't know, the goddess I know, the goddess I don't know, the goddess that's, that's in his country, the goddess that's far away. Uh, the guy's messed up. He's got something wrong in his life. And the only thing he can think of is he's made some God mad. He just don't know who. And he don't know what he did either. But he comes to that conclusion I shared last week. Mankind is perverted and has no judgment of all men who are alive, who knows anything. They do not know whether they do good or evil. Basically, he reminds us this morning that mankind, apart from any revelation of God, self-disclosure, we are left in the darkness. We are blind and ignorant to the reality of who God is. And that's why we should encourage as our missionaries seek to translate the Bible and spread the message of God uh, across the nations who, who do not have access to it. Why? Because God is not silent. He is not silent. He has given us his word. Now, this book right here that, that you hold in your lap or, or and that I hold in my hand, he has disclosed himself. And you know that, don't you? That, that you don't know anything about a person that they don't reveal to you. Now, I know some of you are pretty good on Google now. They didn't used to have that. and You can kind of like stalk people. And find out stuff they don't want you to know. God has revealed to us who he is. Not in private. Not in secret. And I think sometimes we, we I don't know about you, but we feel like we get frustrated with what he said. And we want something new. And that's the, the thing. Give me something fresh, something new and all that. And, and I would just say, God has given us enough in his word. We ought to be satisfied and content in it. Because believe me. I don't care who you are here this morning, you've not mastered it. You've not unearthed every rock and seen every attribute. You've not stand amazed at every verse and every promise. You've not climbed to the peak of the reality of God. Uh, and I don't care how long you've been saved and how many times you've read through the Bible. Every time we come to this reality of this living God disclosing himself to us through the means which he gave us, and that is his word. How do you know God? his word and through salvation as he delivers us in the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But what do we do? What do we find when we look through the word of God and God introduces himself to us? Turn with me back to Rome, Hebrews chapter number one.
what we find most clearly when we come to the word of God is his son. Notice verse number one, long ago and many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Is a radiance of the glory of God, is that imprint of his nature. If you would know God, if you would want to know him, truly know him, get to know him through the Son. There is no other way. There is no other picture which he has given us. He has given us no image in the Old Testament to bow down to. No image where we can cast our eyes upon and say, yes, this is God. And yet he has given us his his son, his exact image in the person of Jesus Christ and preserved it for you and I this morning so that as we walk through the pages of the New Testament and we unearth who Jesus is and through the Gospels and he's explained to us and as we read through Revelation and he has anticipated for us that we begin to know God more fully, more fully. You see, He's the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is uh, he is the self-disclosure, the special revelation of God in its fullness given to us. And again, I would just challenge you. It is often the case that we make God more out to be us than he is who he is. And you and I as Christians, all how we ought to bring our minds back, shepherd our thoughts back in those moments that he is no, he is no God like me. He is alive. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. He is himself. But not only uh, do we see that, thirdly, I want you to notice we are blessed by God. You see that we please God. Secondly, we believe God. And thirdly, we are blessed by God. Notice what he says at the end of verse number six. We must believe that he exists and there's more than just believing God is. Here he's speaking of the nature, the character. It is important what we believe about God as we've said that. But notice as he points out that he rewards those who seeks him. Isn't that interesting? Not only is God real and God exists, he is who he is, but he he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Or as the King James puts it, diligently seek him or NIV earnestly seek him, emphasizing the kind of seeking which he has in mind here. What comes to your mind when you think about God? You think about who he is. He's not only shown to be himself but the writer points us to his goodness his graciousness and speaking with Moses in Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 God declares his own name or or preaches his own name to Moses in the Lord he says the Lord a God merciful and gracious slow to anger listen listen as he describes himself and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins. Is that the first thought that comes to your mind when you think about God? But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
Isaiah 45, verse 19, God speaking through his uh, prophet there says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I do not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I do not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. That's what the Hebrew writer is trying to bring us to here in verse number six. Not only believing God, but as we come to him, draw near to him, we do not do so in vain. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Isn't there a suspicion that as we come to the throne of God, we find something terrible and dark and overwhelming? Some of you may be thinking that even now as you think about the presence of God and and his throne. I remember growing up, people... Certain people in my life, authority figures, I would not go to. If I had a need and they had the means to meet that need, I would not go to them. I would just do without. Because I didn't know they were good. I didn't know they were gracious. I knew they had the means to meet that need, but I didn't want to fear the the wrath of if that need was unmet or if I was a bother or whatever the case may be. And some of us treat God that way. We think of God through that lens, don't we? I'll do without. I'll make do. I'll deal with it. I won't go because we don't understand who God is. God, to them, is at every moment ready to crush us and cast us away. We might go to the Garden of Eden and ask Adam and Eve the same question as they hid from his presence after sinning against him. But beloved, what do we find? One who covered them. And while he removed them from the garden and and placed a guard at the entrance to the garden, it itself was an act of his grace, lest they eat of the tree of life and be forever condemned in that state of disobedience. Covered their nakedness. And I could say this, and I would say many of you would agree with that this morning. Are you not surprised what you find in God? In fact, the problem is that he is too gracious, kind, receiving, rich in mercy, the Bible says, lavishing us with grace, generous in grace. And we need only look at Calvary. The thick darkness of the earth shaking, a disfigured man on a tree, a curse, and, and, and the cry of dereliction, all of that going on. And yet what also do you see? A thief who's promised everlasting life at the moment of his death, who at one moment cursed his maker. A cry from that same man who cried out for dereliction, cried for the forgiveness of those who brutally beat him. You find a veil in the temple that is rent. You see, he's telling us here in verse number six that as we come to understand who God is, we approach him knowing his own goodness and his character that he is that he is for us and not against us. We might only consider the gospel itself. And is it not a surprise that God is so gracious to poor sinners and rebels? I want to just say you this morning. Some of you have taken the Lord's name in vain more than once. Even after you've vowed your love and obedience to him. All of you, every one of you, including myself, have 
sinned against his royal law, haven't you? And in some ways in defiance against him and in anger or in just total disregard of who he is. Every one of us has stood guilty before him at enmity with him. The Bible uses that language as being at war with him. And what do you find? You find a God who becomes flesh, takes on flesh, walks among us. A God who looks upon us and has pity and compassion. A God who uh, walks all the way to Calvary, setting his face to that place that would redeem us and call us out of that sinfulness. Even at the moment we, we deserve disregard and eternal damnation, the gospel cries out, wait. Those who draw near to God will not only find who he is, but find great reward at his hand. Great reward. He still comes to us and draws near, draws near to us. You and I need to be reminded of that. Now I know there may be some of you, maybe one or two of you here this morning, that have heard the gospel. You may have heard it many times. You've heard the goodness of God. And I don't know who you are. If I did, it would be a lot easier. We could talk after church. It would be a lot easier that way. And yet after knowing all of these things, you still will not seek him. You still will not come. And the Bible says it may be very well that you love your sin more than you love the thought of life. The thought of forgiveness. The thought of God himself. And yet in his word, again, he comes to you reminding you that the way that you're going the way that you're living this life will never please him. It is only by faith. But if by faith you believe he is who he is, his son, Jesus Christ, and that he died for your sins and on the third day rose again, and that, that if you put your faith in him, you would be forgiven, turning from your sins, turning to him. He says you will find great reward. He rewards those who seek him. But I want you to know this morning, it isn't just the evangelical message of those who need to come to faith in Christ. It's true, you need to come to faith in Christ. But it is a reminder to us this morning, to all of us, this is who God is. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to those who, who are struggling and there's pressure and there's suffering. And he's already told them, draw near to find help and in your time of need, draw near to find sustaining grace and strength in all that you're going through. And basically, when he gets to chapter number six, you see how these people live this life. And, and by faith, they did all this stuff. Now, come to God, draw near to God, because there's great reward at his hand. He will strengthen you and he will sustain you and he will carry you and he will meet your needs according to his riches and glory. He is good on his promises. He is good on his promises. And he says here, just that, that little statement at the end, those who seek him or diligently seek him or earnestly seek him. I just wonder if all of this is true. If faith is that coming to God, coming to grips of who God is, laying hold of that and, and trusting him and, and, and understanding his goodness and drawing near to him, then, then do you 
continue to seek him? That's the, the wording here of seeking, continually live in a state of seeking God. Is that a pattern of your life? Would you describe your life as one that seeks God continually? I think that's what he's asking these readers to do and encouraging them to do. You're in a time of great need and there's a great pressure on your life and facing persecution. You, you've got problems that are greater than yourself. Live seeking God because he doesn't change just as he was with Abel and Enoch and, and uh, Abraham and Noah and Gideon, all of that. So he still is today. Continue to seek him. Search for him. How do we do that? Well, we do it in several different ways. Just in closing, we do it through prayer. Isn't that a struggle for you and me? Peter, in the great time of temptation in his own life, Jesus said, he, he said, can't you even watch him pray one hour while he is asleep? We seek him through prayer. We seek him through reading and studying and meditating on the word of God. For if God is to be known, then we must let him set the, the standard. You know, I, I've been guilty of this, having to read books for school and find myself reading Christian books that's got Bible verses in it. And, and I just kind of skim over that to get to the gist of what the guy's saying, you know, and skim over the verse part. Oh, it ought to be the other way around. It's the life that's found in the Word of God, not in the guy's opinion of it. And why those are helpful and good and true. I've got a lot of books on my shelf. You can borrow one if you want. As long as you give it back. Right? But it's the word of God that he has made himself known. Seek him through his word. Search for him. And through fellowship of the saints, even as we think about meeting together tonight and worshiping God, meeting together, displaying our love for God and our trust in God as we display our love for one another and encouragement to one another. Let me just remind you, church, as we come to a conclusion here, do you not see the val uh, valor of Gideon? <laughs> it's a funny story. How man of valor, he says, who's hiding. The endurance of Enoch, the patience of Job. They were all an overflow, an outflow of the reality of God and his goodness, his promises. They could stand firm and they can carry on in times far darker than ours lived facing far more injury than we are, not because they themselves were great, but because by faith they had a great God, and he's the same today. Take courage in that. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this morning as we come together. Thank you for your word. Lord, we just pray that you would let it work in our hearts. Something that was said, uh, something through your word, was brought out that might challenge us and encourage us and do what needs to be done in our own lives. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who knows where we are. I pray that he would have his work among us. In Jesus' name, amen.